Let's go, Lord, in prayer at this time. Our Father and our God, Father, it is always good to be in your house, to be with brothers and sisters in Christ, and to sing of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Lord, you have been so good and so kind through the years and your faithfulness to us. And Father, we thank you. And Lord, we ask now that you'd be in the preaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct this message, and that your Holy Spirit would bring the message home to each and every one of us as we think about drawing near to you. And Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday I began a message on drawing near to God. This morning is part two to that message. For those of you who were not here last Sunday, and for those of you who were here this Sunday, we're going to take a little time and just review. There's nothing wrong with repeating something. That's the way we learn. Usually the best way to learn is by repetition. And so we're going to have a little bit of a review, and then we'll move on to some fresh material this morning. In this passage, we're focusing on drawing near drawing near to God. In this passage of Scripture, grammatically, there is one main point to our text. We have two since clauses followed by the main clause. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since... You might want to circle that. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. That's the first since clause. Then look at verse 21. Here you have the second since clause. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. And now comes the main clause. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the main clause, and that's the main point of this exhortation. Let us draw near to God. That is the one command, that is the one exhortation in here. You have two since clauses followed by the main clause, which is we are to draw near to God. That's the main point, that's the main objective of this passage of Scripture. Drawing near to God. Drawing near to God, we said last Sunday, is the essence of the gospel. It is at the very core of the gospel. If I was to ask you, why are we here this morning? Why do we gather on a Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday? What's our goal? What's our purpose? What's the essence of the gospel? 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Here's the essence of Christianity. Why did Christ set aside his glory? Why was it that he was born in Bethlehem? Why was he crucified on a cross outside of Jerusalem and buried and three days later rose again? Why did he do all of that? To bring us to God, to bring us into a relationship with the living God, that we might have fellowship with him, that we have communion with him. That's the essence of Christianity. That's why we gather on a Sunday morning is to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. 
and to be with brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage each other in our relationship to the Lord. So the gospel and the heart of the gospel is that we might have communion with God, that we might have fellowship with God, that we might enjoy sweet communion with God. And so I need you to stop right here and say, how's your week been? Have you been enjoying sweet communion with the Lord? Or do you feel like God has been distant from you this week? The heart of Christianity is to bring us into relationship with the living God so that we can have communion with him. You remember that after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God pronounces judgment upon the man. He pronounces judgment upon the woman. He pronounces judgment upon the serpent. And then God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his presence. And then we read in Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Why are we separated from God? Because of our sins. Why does he hide his face from us? Because of our sins. Our sins have separated us from God. But here in Hebrews 9 and 10, we see God has dealt with the problem of our sins. Jesus has made an atonement for our sins. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. All of our sins are forgiven. God has made a way. He has dealt with this problem of sin. We sing that song, Hallelujah, What a Savior. Do you remember verse 3? Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God is He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. There's nothing left for me to pay for. Jesus paid it all. That's what the writer of Hebrews is communicating in chapters 9 and 10. God has made a way for us to draw near to Him. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying there's no longer a separation from God and his people, that this veil has been torn down in the person of Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ, we now have access to the throne of God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. God has made a way. The door is open. Jesus has made an atonement for our sins. And now we have access to the throne of God and we can draw near to God. That is what he is saying here in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. We read in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. If God did not draw us to himself, there would be no way we would or could draw near to him. But because he has drawn us, we now can draw near to God. And then John writes, Behold what manner of love is this, that the Father has uh, called us his children, that we are called the sons of God. And I asked you last Sunday, is there anyone nearer to you than your children? 
And what has God done? He has adopted us into his household. He has called us his children. And we are very, very near to him. So you read this passage and realize God has done all of this for us so that we can draw near to him. God has brought us near. God has brought us very near. He has adopted us into his family, and we are his children, and we belong to him. God has made a way for us to draw near to him. Then we tried to answer the question last Sunday, what do we, what do we mean by drawing near to God? In view of the fact that God is an omnipresent God. And that doesn't mean there's a piece of God here and a piece of God there. It means all of God is everywhere all the time. Jeremiah 23, 24, God says, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? And the psalmist says, Where are you going to go to get out of the presence of God? If you ascend to heaven, he's there. If you make your bed in Sheol, he is there. So God is everywhere. Paul in Acts 17 says to those Greek philosophers, He is not far from any one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. So what do you mean by drawing uh, near to God and the presence of God? God's everywhere. Yeah, it's what theologians call the universal presence of God. Yes, he's everywhere. But what we're talking about is the perceived presence of God, the perceptible presence of God, God manifesting himself to us, God drawing near to us. And last Sunday, we looked at Genesis 28, 10 through 18, Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau and he lays down in the middle of the wilderness and he falls asleep and he grabs this rock for a pillow and he falls asleep and he has this dream and he sees this ladder and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder and then God speaks to him and says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and just like I was with your fathers, I will be with you, I will watch over you and care for you and I'm going to give you this land and then Jacob gets up and he says, surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he anoints this rock with oil, and he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. God is here. God is present. Jacob experienced the presence of God. He experienced the nearness of God. D.L. Moody tells a time when God drew near to him. One day in the city of New York... Oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience in which he never spoke of for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. So D.L. Moody is in New York. Actually, he was really crying out for God, seeking God, and God drew near to him, and he experienced the presence of God, and he ended up saying, I sensed the, the love of God and the grace of God so much that I had to say, God, stay your hand. It's too much. It's overwhelming me, the presence of God. This week, I Googled Duncan Campbell and the revival on Lewis Island. If you want to be blessed, Google that this afternoon. Duncan Campbell was scheduled to preach at a conference. They had all the speakers lined up. And he said, I cannot preach here. God is calling me to Lewis Island. So he went to Lewis Island. 
And he got off the boat, and he's standing there on the pier, and the pastor and two elders meet him there. And one of the elders says to him, Brother Campbell, do you walk with God? He said, well, I can say this, I fear God. The elder said, good enough. And then the pastor said to him, um, I know you're tired from your trip and you're hungry. I'm going to take you to the manse, which is a parsonage, and we've got dinner waiting for you. But would you mind stopping by the church and just share a message with them tonight? There's about 200 brothers and sisters gathered tonight at the church. Would you mind stopping by? He said, no, absolutely not. So they went to church and they sang some hymns and Duncan Campbell preached the message and everybody left the church and they're just kind of hanging out in the front of the church. And there's one gentleman in the church with Duncan Campbell. Everybody else had left. And this man says, I'm praying for revival, that God would come to this island. In a matter of moments, the people outside the church started coming back into the church. There was a local dance going on down the street where a lot of the teenagers were hanging out. All of them fled the dance and came to the church. The church all of a sudden was filling up with hundreds of people. Duncan Campbell said there were so many young people around the altar, I had to step over them to get to the pulpit. And there was one teenage girl just crying out, God, is there mercy for me? God, is there mercy for me? Duncan Campbell finally got to the manse about 5.30 in the morning. God had moved in a special way. He was planning on being on the island for one week. He was there for one month. Everywhere he turned, people were conscious of the presence of God. Sometimes farmers, hundreds of them, gathering together for a time of prayer. Everyone was conscious of the nearness of God and the presence of God. Sometimes God does that. And as a church, we ought to pray for revival in our land, that God would draw near. That is a very precious time. But you want to know something else? The scripture tells us also there's times when we experience God abandoning us, forsaking us, or it appears that he's forsaken us. He's promised, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But the old Puritans referred to the dark night of the soul. John Newton, years after he's converted, experienced the dark night of the soul. He could not find God anywhere. John Bunyan, in his classic uh, allegory of the Christian life, the Pilgrim's Progress, tells about Christian going through the valley of the shadow of death. And he said, it was total darkness. I didn't know to go forward or go backwards. So sometimes God's people experience distance from God. Job says, oh, that I might find God in the midst of all this mess. Elijah is depressed and discouraged and down. He's ready to say, God, just, just kill me. Just, my life is over. I'm the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. I've got 4,000 have not bowed their knee to Baal. Sometimes God's people experience a distance from God. But what we have here in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, is a command. It is an exhortation for you and me to draw near to God. God has made a way, the door is open, the veil has been removed. We can now draw near to God and have communion with God. This is our responsibility here in Hebrews 9 and 10. Draw near to God. Brother Conrad Murrow was preaching at Walnut Ridge College many years ago. 
and he was in the, the lunch, the cafeteria, and one of the college students sat next to him. He said, Brother Murr, I want to ask you something. I ask a lot of folks. He said, what's the greatest thing about Christianity to you? Brother Merle said, well, I haven't thought about that. Give me a moment. He thought about it, and then he said, immediate, unhindered access to God. That's what we have as Christians, immediate, unhindered access to God. We can draw near to God. Because Jesus Christ has made an atonement for our sins. All of our sins were given. The veil's been torn down. God has made a way for us to enter into his presence. Now that was all review. This morning, what I would like to focus on is to remind you and me of what the scripture tells us about some of the causes of a perceived distance from God. Oh, there's a time when I was so close to God. He walked with me, and he talked with me, and he told me I was his own. And the joy we shared as we tarried there was like none other. There was a time when I felt really close to God. But what happened? Where is he? He feels so distant from me. What, what happened? Why does God feel so far away from me? Why can't I find him? We're going to look this morning at some scripture passes, passages that tells us about why it could be that we've gotten distance from God. One is pride. It doesn't take much for us to get puffed up. Arrogance. It's a form of pride that exhibited itself particularly in appropriating to ourselves abilities, excellences, and privileges which are not lawfully ours. Remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. You Corinthians were boasting about your gifts. If it's a gift and God gave it to you, why are you boasting about it? Pride had entered the church in Corinth. Probably one of the greatest examples of pride and arrogance is King Nebuchadnezzar. One day he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal palace and for the glory of my majesty? King Nebuchadnezzar is looking around and saying, Look at Babylon the great. Look what I have done. I have built this great city. And God says, No, you haven't. You're going to eat dirt for about seven years. And then when your mind is returned to you, you will acknowledge that I am God and I reign in heaven above and give it to whomever I please. How we have to watch for arrogance and pride as Christians, as pastors, how we have to guard ourselves from, from pride. Oh, you know, when I came to this church, there's only 20 people. Now we've grown to 250. God's really blessed. Boy, look what we've done here. How we have to guard ourselves on this area of pride. It doesn't take much for us to get all puffed up. You do something, and it turns out pretty good. And you start congratulating yourself and say, hey, that turned out pretty good. I did a pretty good job on that. And now we have confidence in the flesh. We're no longer poor and needy. We're no longer feeling weak and helpless. We feel rich 
and in need of nothing. We are strong and self-sufficient. And you might run on that for a little while, but pretty soon it's going to fizzle out and God ain't going to be around. When you start congratulating yourself and look what I've accomplished and look what we've done. Self-sufficiency, self-reliance, no longer needy. And you're going to soon find out you don't have the strength, you don't have the brains that you thought you did, and God's going to be far, far away from you. We have this sort of thing in the book of James. If you have your Bibles, turn over to James, or about three pages over. Look at James 4, reading 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see how James is kind of tying all this stuff together? You want to draw near to God? What kind of people does God draw near to? Not the arrogant, not the proud, but the humble, those who submit to him and to his authority. As long as we're self-sufficient and we think we can do it, God will be a thousand miles from us. God hates pride. Pride is our chief Sin. Pride is the sin above all sins. It was pride that led to the fall of mankind, and it was pride that led to the fall of Satan. You remember what happened in the garden? Oh, you will not surely die. God just pulling your leg a little bit. You're not going to die. God knows the day you eat of that, you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Wouldn't you like to be God? Wouldn't you like to be the one calling the shots? Wouldn't you like to be the one that decides what you can and cannot do? It was pride that led to the fall of mankind. God hates pride. We can be proud of our birth. We can be proud of our family. We can be proud of our money. We can be proud of our nationality. We can be proud of our upbringing. We can be proud of our status in life. We can be proud of our business accomplishments. We can be uh, proud of our brains, our understanding, our education. And we get the feeling we're superior to others. Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke at a very prestigious university in England. And after he got done speaking, one of the students stood up and said, Dr. Jones, you spoke to us like we're a bunch of plowboys. Dr. Jones stood up and said, I'm sorry, I assumed you were made of the same dirt as the plowboy. We're all dirt. We were down in Mexico one time, and uh, Brother Conrad Merle was preaching down there at MITC, and some of the students came up to Brother Merle, and they said, Brother Merle, they were teasing him. They said, are you that man in Daniel? You know, one that has the head of gold and, and uh, the neck of silver and the chest of bronze, but his feet is clay. They were teasing Conrad and said, are you that man in uh, Daniel? Conrad said, no, I'm not that man. He said, this man is dirt from the top of the head to the bottom of my feet. That's all we are, dirt. 
Do you remember Isaiah 57, 15? Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite heart. This is the person I will dwell with, somebody who is humble. Yes, I am high and lifted up, but I also dwell with those who are contrite of heart. And how about Psalm 34, 18? The Lord is near. Near to who? He tells us. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Who does the Lord draw near to? Those who are cocky and self-sufficient and need nothing? No, no. He said, I'm opposed to the proud, but I will draw near and I will dwell with the humble. God is near to the brokenhearted. Kind of reminds you of the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Who are the kind of people that God draws near to? A man like Moses, who felt deeply unworthy of the task that was laid upon him. He was conscious of his insufficiencies, his inadequacies. Bible tells us that Moses was a very meek man. He was aware of the fact that he was not sufficient to do the job. You find it in a man like David. Scripture records that David went and sat before the Lord and said, who am I? Who am I that you have brought me this far? I was nothing but a shepherd boy, and you made me the king of Israel. You see it in a man like John the Baptist who said, there's one coming who is greater than I because he existed before me and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. You see it in a man like Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And he sees the Lord and how does he respond? Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips dwelling among a people of unclean lips. The closer a man gets to God, the more he abhors himself, sees his sinfulness, and sees the grace of God. God draws near to the humble, not the proud, not the arrogant. You remember John 15? Jesus says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. In religion, you have great men. Anytime you find somebody boasting about men, you've touched religion, because in religion you have great men, but not in Christianity. Christianity, you have one great man, Jesus, and everybody else is just a branch on that vine, and they make their boast in Christ. Who does the Lord draw near to? Not the proud, not the self-sufficient, but the poor and the needy. Last Sunday, I love that we ended the services last Sunday by singing the song, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, and come, I come to thee. That's the heart of a Christian. He cries out, I need the Lord. I can't do this. I can't preach. I can't teach. I don't know how to love people like I'm supposed to. Lord, I need you every hour of every day. 
I am not sufficient. I am poor and needy. The Lord in his word tells us that he will not draw near to the arrogant and the self-sufficient, but he will draw near to those who are humble. Pride will destroy you and me. Pride will destroy this church. Pride will destroy our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sir Oliver Cromwell said, I beseech you in the name of Christ, consider the possibility that you are mistaken. Whenever you got an issue in the church, you might want to consider the fact, I might be wrong. I might be mistaken here. And my brother or sister is right. Scripture warns us about the dangers of pride and arrogance. God draws near to the humble. Another cause of drifting away from God, idolatry. They asked John Piper, how do you define an idol? Loving someone or something more than God, finding joy or your happiness, your satisfaction in something other than God. That's an idol. There's anything out there that you find your joy and your happiness other than God that could be an idol. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 44.10. But the Levites who went from me, these are the priests, going astray from me after idols. Okay, there's the priests of God. They're going after idols. Then you drop down three verses to verse 13. Because they ministered to them before their idols, they shall not come near to me, God says. As long as you're worshiping an idol, you will not come near to me. I know a pastor who confessed that golf had become an idol in his life. It had become a stumbling block to his ministry, a distraction to his ministry. And he said the Lord was dealing with him. He was fighting the Lord. And finally he said, okay, Lord, you win. And he put his golf clubs in the garage for a year because it had become an idol to him. Not a hobby, nothing wrong with golf, nothing wrong with recreation and enjoying that. But this was affecting his ministry. It became his love, his passion. It was what he was thinking about all the time. And God dealt with it. He said, I, I can't do this. I will put it away for a year. And now he says, I can enjoy it now. It doesn't control me. We have to guard ourselves against idols. Another cause for drifting away from God is just disobedience. Disobedience to God. There may be something in your life that God is saying, I want you to do this. And you're going, uh-uh, uh-uh, not me. I ain't doing that. As long as you reject his will for your life and fight against him, you're not going to experience the presence of God. It's only those who obey the Lord who find him drawing near to them. So if there's something out there that God's saying, I want you to do, and you're going, uh-uh, I ain't doing that. You're rejecting his reign and rule of your life. You say, I ain't doing that. Then you'll never experience God drawing near to you. And folks, I really could go on and on about hindrances to our walk with God. We're going to leave it there this morning.
Calvary Baptist Church, let's draw near to God. Let's be a humble people that seek the Lord. Let's cast away any idols that we have. Let's find our joy and happiness in God and God alone. And let's obey him. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. It comes through obedience and walking with the Lord. John talks about there, there's no way you can say you're walking in the light if you're walking in disobedience to his word. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, and I'm going to ask Pastor Tony to come and lead us in our observing of the Lord's Supper. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage in Hebrews. Thank you that you have made a way for us to draw near to you through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a kind of people that seek you and seeks to draw near to you each and every day, that we would begin every day, every moment of every day, seeking your presence and drawing near to you. Father, thank you that we have unhindered access to you anytime during the day, anywhere. And Lord, we thank you for the access that we have to your throne. And Lord, we thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that we would continue to encourage one another to draw near to you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.